Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Nick Tragis on the Rider Flex podcast. Happy holidays, Nick. Thank you for being on. Appreciate Thank it. You. It's uh, what is it? What is it? Today's the twenty second, right? Okay. Now you got. Uh, are you married? You got. You got your spouse or partner gifts? Are you done? Are you good to go? I have. I have completed my shopping. Yes, I am married. I live here in uh, Boulder, Colorado, with my uh, amazing wife, Faith. Okay, you're done. Okay, I'm done too. I feel good once I'm once I get all my wife's stuff done. Right, I, I kind of relax a little bit. <laughs> she always seems to be done like a month before I am. It's a little bit stressful because <laughs> I'll see all the presents all wrapped, all perfect, and I'm like, yeah. oh damn, I still have to go like find the card and everything. <laughs> you guys got kids we do not have kids just the two of us here oh, okay all right well you're still young you're still you're still super young hell you look like you're 28 how old are you i, I appreciate you saying that uh, not quite anymore but uh, we'll just leave it at that <laughs> uh tell me about your personal life a little bit maybe see family mom dad where you grew up give us a little history if you don't mind yeah sure so uh, i grew up uh in connecticut uh, came out to Colorado for uh, school, went to the School of Mines. So I have a uh, materials engineering background. Uh, started my life as a process engineer, doing some really cool stuff, building uh, high power laser, uh, laser optics assemblies. And have uh, kind of slowly grown in my career to uh, now I, I try to help tech companies do cool stuff. And uh, the latest iteration of that is uh, working with this company, uh, Light Tech Diagnostics. What about your folks, though? Give me your mom. Give me the history for your mom and dad. So uh, dad was an engineer, worked for the uh, Navy designing sonar systems. So that's where I got my uh, engineering bent. We used to okay. uh, build toy okay. race cars and go fishing and all that fun stuff as a kid. Um, and mom did a bang up job raising me and not letting me off the hook. So uh, <laughs> she now lives in uh, Rochester near my sister and her two grandkids and okay. uh, is enjoying retirement. Well, very good. All right. No, no siblings. Uh, my sister um, uh, lives out next to my mom, and she has uh, twin boys. Uh, by the way, I saw that we're tied to uh, some people in Boulder that we you, we probably know uh, similar people. So you're in the cycling world. You know Ian McGregor from Scratch Labs? Of course. So Ian and I actually came through the ranks together. Ah, okay. All right. Well, give me so a, he was, right, give, he's quite a bit younger than me. So he was like literally just a kid and super talented, and um, and I was a little bit older. And uh, yeah, we came through like the amateur ranks together. So we both got like the, our elite licenses. And then I went and got a, uh, a real job. And Ian kept going for a while as a professional before he went and got a real job. So uh, yeah, but I know Ian uh, quite well. Uh, very good. He was one of, uh, we've had over 200 guests on the Rutherford's podcast, but he was like, I don't know, he was in like the first 20 or so. He, he was on a long time ago, even before I think we started doing video. Great guy, good friend of Rider Flex. 
Um, yeah, he does good with, stuff over at Scratch Labs. There, yeah, here in town. They they do. Can you give me a good story? Like, can you give me a good party story where like Ian like got, got crazy? Can you tell us so when we, we can something? No, I think I got to protect the innocent on that one. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Ian was like studying and reading Bible verses and never did anything bad. I'm sure. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, I'm going to have to make sure I tell him this uh, about 10 minutes into the, into the podcast. Okay. Thank you for sharing some of that background. All right. So you come out of school of minds. Congratulations, by the way, graduating from there is no, there's no small, no small feat. So congrats. You come out of there. Did you, know exactly what you wanted to do you're like okay i'm gonna work for tech companies i'm gonna be an executive i'm gonna be a ceo was that all a plan or walk me through some of your career there so i knew i wanted to be an engineer because if you don't you shouldn't go to the school of mines that's, that's right the one and only thing you can do there so um <laughs> kind of exactly where it was going to go from there I, I would say as a 20 year old i hadn't thought that all the way through um but basically started working doing uh, process development for this small startup okay. um uh, we were very small. I was like the fourth employee. So very early stage. Uh, we had to start talking to customers and I realized I had a knack for it. So all of a sudden I became in charge of sales. So <laughs> I did that for a while. Uh, then we were growing really fast and uh, the operations team started having trouble keeping up. And I started complaining to the CEO that the operations team couldn't keep up. And he's like, fine, that's your problem now too. So I ultimately ended up uh, running that company. Um, we grew that for a while longer, and then ultimately we sold that company in 2012 to a, a company called IDEX Corporation. Did you score on that? Did, did you have equity? Did you, uh, did you capitalize on that or not? I, I, I was an early employee, not a founder. So I did okay. well, but not like life-changing, I, I think yeah. is the right okay. way to say it. All right. Um, then uh, uh, went to work with this company, IDEX, and the way I say it is we made a bunch of promises when we sold the company to them, and I had to go live up to them. So uh, served as the CTO there and uh, really had some fun. So I spent a lot of time integrating uh, other small acquisitions into the larger organization and kind of helping them understand what they bought and kind of how do we get the culture fit of a small tech company into a large public organization. Okay. Um, so did that for a few years and then turned that into a consulting gig where I worked for a variety of companies in different industries, helping them uh, buy and sell companies, do licensing deals, uh, things of that nature. Um, along the way, I think I mentioned I have a cycling background. I actually mm -hmm. uh, started a uh, professional cycling team and uh, uh, ran that for a while, which was super fun. It was kind of a way to go back and relive the dream for a few more years. Could um, they, can you make money doing that or was it just for fun or break even? You, you can, you can, depends at what level you do it at. There are some people that make good money, but that is a very kind of rarefied group. I see. Um, I, see. I was at the level where I was. Uh, Doing better than I was getting paid a little bit of money to do my hobby, I guess is maybe the right. There, there, hey, there you go. Writer. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then as a director, I was making some money, but you really, I mean, relative to like a tech company job or being an executive, it is yeah. a massive pay cut. You do it for your heart, um, yeah. right? Mentoring yeah. uh, uh, these young kids and kind of helping them grow up. Whether do you still ride? You, you still ride? Oh, I ride quite a bit here in Boulder. Um, you need to train pretty hard just to be able to keep up with your friends because everyone is <laughs> yeah. or Olympian or, or something of that nature. <laughs> uh, by the way, here's a quick, I got a quick question for you. Why do guys that ride motorcycles call themselves bikers and guys that ride bikes call themselves cyclists? <laughs> I don't know, but I will tell you when someone calls me a biker, it totally bothers me because that's the guys that ride motorcycles. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, I heard that's that. Uh, just the way it's always been, and that's how we do it. And man, it it, it super chased me when someone calls me a biker because I was like, no, those are the guys that twist the throttle. I pedal. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, okay, so you're doing some consulting. You're moving along. You're getting tons of experience with M&A and startups and, and, and cash raising and founders. You're getting lots of experience. And then what happens? Uh, what, a friend or somebody calls you from LightDeck? How do you get involved there? Yeah, so the founder of the first company, Precision Photonics, mm. um, it was also the founder and CEO of LightDeck. So LightDeck actually spun out of that first company. It I see. Okay. As I took right. over running uh, Precision Photonics, the technology development for LightDeck kind of became a skunk shorts division headed up by this gentleman, Chris Myatt, who is the founder of Precision Photonics. He turned that mm. into a company. Now that becomes parallel tracks because I'm living up to the work I was talking about at IDEX, doing some mm. consulting. Uh, eventually, Chris called me and asked for some help. He had some mm. uh, licensing deals he was negotiating and asked me to come help take the lead on that. Okay. Uh, that turned into helping him with fundraising. And then very recently, uh, this past summer, he's like, hey, Nick, we're kind of ready to enter that next stage of growth where the company is going from uh, cool science to, hey, now we got to turn it into products and satisfy customers and put process in place. Would you be interested in taking over the reins and help uh, kind of driving that next phase? So congratulations, CEO as of July 2021 for LightDeck, right? That, that sounds about right. Yes, I, I, it feels like seven years ago already, but I think that's, uh, <laughs> I think it is about five months. Yes. Uh, give the uh, three-minute elevator pitch, whatever, uh, the overview. Give us the light deck overview, overview. And by the way, for the listeners, really quick, it is lightdeckdx.com, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um, and there's a nice little video on the, way, on the main page, et cetera. But give us the overview, if you don't mind, Nick. Go ahead. Sure. So we make a point-of-care diagnostic instrument. It's about the size of a shoebox, and it has a little disposable cartridge. And you can measure various conditions or uh, diseases on that cartridge very, very quickly. Um, so, for example, we are doing uh, testing in the veterinary markets with our partner Heska, who's up here in Loveland, Colorado, uh, testing various uh, 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 hormone conditions in, in cats and dogs. We're doing okay. some uh, water testing for toxins with a partner uh, called Hawk, also here in Colorado. Mm. And then we are about to release our first human test products. The first will be a five minute test for uh, the presence of COVID, which will be uh -huh. when it's released will be the uh, fastest test on the market by quite some margin. So we're pretty excited about that. Okay, so for the listeners that are just listening and maybe not watching the video, uh, so light deck, if you go to the website, it's like a little it's like a little box about, I don't know, about like this. That's correct. Yeah. And you and you what do you do you put in a blood sample or a urine sample or or, or what do you yes, yeah, so what, what, uh, it'll be um, a little finger prick blood draw. It could be like a swab, like for anyone that's gotten a COVID test, you can take that swab and uh, okay. dip it in a little solution and load that on the cartridge. So uh, snot, okay. saliva, uh, blood, uh, water, obviously, for the water testing application. So kind of a variety of uh, matrices, if you will. What about for urine? Uh, we're, we, we could. We're not currently developing any tests that would require that, but that is, that is something that could be done. Okay. So, all right. So what is the eventual goal? Is the goal to have this mobile testing box for all healthcare providers or to eventually sell it to homes direct to consumer? The goal of this particular box is not to go at home. It is to replace central laboratory testing with something that can be done in the doctor's office 
at the bedside or in a, in a pharmacy, for example. So right now, when you go to the doctor's office and they draw your blood, that either that gets mailed away to a distant lab somewhere or goes down the hallway and it takes uh, several hours to several days to get back and you have to wait for those answers. Mm -hmm. Our device is sensitive enough and has enough uh, capability to do what we call kind of a quantitative measurement, which is how much of something is in there relative to whether it's just there or not. Our device is similar enough in performance to these laboratory tests that we can take a central lab test and move it to the point of care, which again is a right in the doctor's office while the patient's waiting at the counter at a pharmacy, uh, at an urgent care clinic, et cetera. So the idea is no longer having to wait for these test results, um, which improves, improves healthcare. So a good example would be, let's say that you're going to the doctor and you have chest pain. So you're worried you're having a heart attack. The doctor is going to, as part of their triage, they're gonna draw blood from you and then they're going to go send that down to the lab to get an answer on, hey, there's certain mm -hmm. inflammatory markers in your body that'll tell, that'll tell them, hey, is this person likely having a heart attack or not? Because mm -hmm. that test takes uh, uh, several hours and they don't want to take the risk, they admit you to the hospital and you sit in a bed and you wait to get that answer because they're not going to send you home if you're having a heart attack. That, that's mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. But what it does mean is many, a large portion of people are being falsely admitted. They're not having a heart attack. They're mm -hmm. having indigestion or some other effect. Um, and you're, you're using up bed space and you're increasing the cost of healthcare because you're, you're admitting people uh, uh, prematurely. So now imagine that same test that takes two hours if you could do it in 15 minutes. Now right. you can do that triage and know exactly, hey, yes, you're having a heart attack. Let's go get this pertinent treatment. Or no, you're not. Let's go run a couple other tests and figure out what it is. But you're, you're, you're probably safe to, uh, to go home. And that... That is a good example of the power of being able to do uh, these tests at the point of care instead of at a lab. Okay, so I want to tie this into the full checkup that I just had then, right? So I'm 54 years old. As you get older, once you get into your mid-50s, you start, you know, you know, you hear about your friends. This guy's got that. She's got this. He's got that. And you start kind of worrying, you know, a little bit more when you're in your 50s. Uh, so I just went and had a full checkup, right? So interesting, right? I go to the doctor. And they do take blood and urine at the little doctor's clinic, but they, but the, the, I got to have, have to wait for those results. And I had to go to a separate location to do, to draw blood for the PSI test, right. For the prostate. Cause they couldn't do that at their clinic. And then, so two different places for them to do a full checkup. And then it was a week later and then the doctor calls me and, and he sets me another appointment. He's like, okay, come back in. Cause I want to go over the results of your tests. And, you know, and you know, when you get a full checkup, you know, they're like, okay, your, your, you know, your cholesterol, your, your liver count, your whatever. So will this eventually when I go to get a checkup with my doctor, can he just, take my blood and urine right there, put it in the thing. And then I'm sitting there on that very same visit. So I don't have to come back. And he just waits 10 minutes, comes back in the room. And we go over the results. Is that, that is, is that where you exactly see this going? The idea. That's exactly the idea. Now I want to be clear. It's not, it's not a perfect solution for everything. So there's a couple of those tests where it probably couldn't be done on this box, but the vast majority of those kind of indications and especially uh, examples where you want to have that result quickly because it, it, it helps with treatment. Absolutely. You're going to get that answer while you're waiting. Not, not just help the treatment, but it helps you psychologically. Right. I, when I'm when I went in for my full checkup, then I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll wait a week to see if I'm dying of anything. 
<laughs> yeah, well, think of like just the expectation as as uh, people, right? Like think of the amount of information that's available to you on your cell phone now. Like right? people yeah. don't want to wait for, for no. information anymore. Like we've no. become very no. accustomed to having having everything we want to know instantly available to us. So the idea that the most important information out there, which is your health, takes the longest to get feedback on is kind of absurd. <laughs> so how do we make that? type of information more immediately available to people. I mean, COVID testing is another easy example. Like I, I don't know how many times you've been tested for COVID, but let's say your, your kid gets a sniffle and you got to take them out of school. Yeah. You got to deal with babysitting and daycare and whatnot until you can put them back in school. If a COVID test result takes 48 hours to come back, that's two days of your life being super disruptive. Imagine wow. if you could go drive down to a, <clears throat> a Walgreens or CVS and run a test in 10 minutes and, and get that answer. Like way, yeah. way more helpful to like just keeping your life on track and not being interrupted. So that ability to know the answer right mm. away, it's just, it's just a better experience for people because your, your life gets put on hold for health issues. I love the idea. Why not? Are there certain regulations that keep you from targeting a revenue stream direct to the consumer or like, why not, why not have a mission to sell it to schools and let people order it off Amazon and do their own testing? Like, can you not do that? Is that against some rules? I don't, I don't know how that works. There, um, there are different kind of regulatory requirements for like a mm. test that's run at home versus a test that's run in a laboratory or, or at a hospital, but that's, that's not really the issue. It's more of a practical one is, the uh, the instrument and kind of how we've set things up is made for very very quick testing relative to like an at home test which like you can kind of take while you're watching TV or something. So okay. we feel the professional markets are where it's best for us to focus first. It's where we're going to make the biggest impact. That doesn't mean that we don't look to do an at home test in the future. But there's other people that are doing that and they do a fine job. Um, they take longer, right? If you've taken some of those tests from Abbott or the probably most widely known, the Binex Now tests for COVID, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you can self-administer those tests. They take about uh, 20 minutes to do and they're a little bit clunky, but they, they, they generally work okay. But those, those aren't ever going to be a five-minute test that a professional can run very, very quickly and, and give you a quantitative answer. So for where we can make the biggest impact in healthcare, we feel that doing it in a professional setting, we're kind of that very quick patient logistics model is most important is the right place for us as a small startup to make an impact. And then maybe in the future, we make an at-home device, but for now that's where we're focusing. Okay. I just want you to know, as a guy that's, uh, you know, in his mid fifties, I want, I want a device in my house eventually where I can just once a month, I can prick my finger. I can put in a little urine sample and it tells me, Hey man, here's what's wrong with you or you're good. I just want it. That's what I want. I want, I want that device. <laughs> Two things. Number one is being a guy in his forties. It scares me to talk about you talking about what it's like in your fifties. And, <laughs> and two is you're exactly on the right track is think of a Keurig machine that's doing exactly that type of work for you. So that is the, that is the long-term goal. Um, as a, as a small company, right. you have to focus and kind of build up to that, but that is, that is ultimately okay. where we all want to go. Very good. How big can I, I know you can't share a bunch of stuff. It's a private company. So, but can like how big are you and maybe how many employees and do you want to, are you in the middle of any cash raises that you want to mention and highlight in case somebody's interested in investing? What do you tell us? Tell us what you can. Sure. So we're uh, about a hundred people now. Um, 
to give you an example of our growth, we are about uh, 30 people a year ago. So wow. we've been uh, going gangbusters. The uh, most noteworthy milestone for us is we recently signed a $35 million contract with a government agency known as BARDA, which is really wow. one of the groups supporting kind of rapid development for testing under the pandemic. And ah. with that $35 million grant, we're building a new factory here in Colorado to allow us to produce a higher volume of these rapid COVID tests, which again, we, we plan on releasing in the first quarter of next year. So Congratulations. we are, the government is really excited about what we're doing. They've supported a lot of our early stage R&D and they're, they're doubling down by kind of helping us fund the factory. So we're ready to go when this product launches. Um, and so, yeah, we're planning on launching this COVID product in the first quarter of next year. Um, and then making as many of those as we possibly can. And then obviously building additional menu uh, as we scale and ultimately kind of living up to, the, to the, the ultimate goal that you set out, which is how do we, how do we give you an instant answer to everything that, uh, that you're curious about as a, as a patient. So no, no VC or PE money yet? <clears throat> oh, no. We, so we are supported by a private capital. We've raised a little over $100 million to date through both okay. equity and non-dilutive funding. Okay. Um, we have some great uh, kind of early stage investors that have supported us. Um, we are, we're, we're always working on something like I don't, I don't have like a specific raise to describe, but uh, okay. we, we are, we're working with some interesting strategic partners where we are talking to some additional investors. Um, and again, a, a big portion of our current funding comes from these, uh, these government contracts. Congratulations on all the cash raises you have done. Excellent. And congrats on closing that. That grant with the government, very good. Okay, so at least you're not you're not bootstrapped, starving for cash, where you're like wondering if you're going to make payroll every week. You're way past that point at this. We are way stage. past that point. I will say <laughs> that when you're trying to grow very quickly, you're almost always starving for cash because how much cash you have determines how quickly you can grow. So, yes, yes. Um, yeah. if, if someone said, "Hey, man, I'd love to give you more money," I probably wouldn't say no. But uh, we are we, <laughs> we have a good path forward as it is. You know, we were mentioning before we started recording. You were saying, uh, yeah, as a CEO, you feel like you have more bosses than you've ever had before. It's true, especially if you have a board of directors, investors, advisory board members, you know, and then your own direct reports. And, and your you know, entire employee base. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's always calling about something, right? Yeah, I've, I've been there, my friend. I know I know exactly uh, how, how it feels. Congratulations on uh, the growth as well. By the way, did I mention I know this really cool recruiting firm called Riderflex that helps people scale with talent? Did I mention that? I have <laughs> heard. I have heard about them. I heard good things. <laughs> Tell me this. I want to ask about. Um, let's move into. Thank you for that overview of Light Deck. I want to move into some advice here on being a CEO. Uh, real quick, for any listeners that are at the VP level, maybe they're at the director level, but they're aspirations are to be a uh, CEO someday. You made that uh, journey. Um, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them? A couple things. First one is make as many mistakes as you can as quickly as possible, because that's how mm -hmm. you learn and get, get better at whatever you're doing. This, is, this mm -hmm. comes from my technical background. When I'm trying to solve a hard technical problem and I'm working with a team of engineers, it's let's, let's get as many bad experimental results as we can because you almost always learn more from, a, from a, a, a bad result than you do from a good result. Mm. Um, so make as many mistakes as fast as possible. What I'll, that's how I started. What I'll add to that as I've moved up in my career is 
surround yourself with good mentors. So none of those mistakes are fatal because mm -hmm. the mistake I made as a engineer. Yeah. So, okay. I got to keep working on a program. Maybe it's delayed a little bit. If I make a big mistake as a CEO, it can be far more detrimental. So as you move up in your career, good mentors and advisors are increasingly important to make sure that, yeah, you're still going to make a lot of mistakes and that's okay. Just make sure none of them are fatal mistakes. And I think mm -hmm. that's the, that's the difference as you, as you, as you move up. How about some, a uh, couple of pieces of advice and I know we could do a, a full episode on this topic, but how about for startup founders? Um, let's, let's say you're speaking to two or three people that they're friends, they have an idea, they're ready to get started. They're about to file for their LLC. Uh, any advice for early stage sure. co-founders? So in my experience, the number one trait of a successful entrepreneur doesn't have to do with how smart they are, how well connected they are. It's how resilient they are because startups are hard. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have setbacks and it's your ability to kind of put your head down and kind of push through those are the difference between the people that are successful and the people that uh, aren't successful. So mm -hmm. business plans aren't, don't go in straight lines. They look like this. <laughs> eventually you get up here. And in almost every case, I will tell you that things look the most dire right before they, you broke through and things were the best in almost every startup I've ever worked for or with. And so it really is that the number one trait that I've seen of the successful entrepreneurs is just resilience and persistence. Isn't that so true about uh, it's the darkest before the dawn, right? I mean, even in our recruiting firm, Rider Flex, as a, as a smaller boutique firm, I can't tell you how many times my co-founder will call me. He'll be like, well, um, this client that we placed 100 people in, you know, they're good to go. They're, they got what they needed. So we're done with that contract. And we're waiting for two more to sign. And then we're like, okay, well, all right, well, 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 we need those other contracts to come in for cash. And then we're worried. And then we sit around and we worry for a week and then boom, five new contracts come in. And all of a sudden it's, holy shit, how do we do all this? I mean, it's, it is like that, right? In the early stages, it is like that. Yeah. Um, how about this? Speaking of hiring and interviewing, so you've scaled pretty fast. What's uh, Nick's uh, secret sauce when he's dissecting a human being in front of him basically to decide whether or not they're good for the team. So, and for me, I'm far more like, if you've gotten in front of me, you clearly have some qualifications to do the job, right? You right. wouldn't have gotten right. that far right. uh, yeah. in the interview process or the resume screen. Like we have good recruiters yeah. that will screen yeah. interview uh, candidates yeah. and say, these people are qualified. So by yeah. the time I'm talking to someone, I'm really more interested in kind of attitude and culture fit. Okay. Like, are we going to work well together? Are we going to have fun? Are you going to, are, what are you going to be like when things get tense? Um, <laughs> I think a good way to look at it for a startup, especially is I look for what I would call uh, low inertia people and that you can change directions quickly and you're adaptable if, Hey, the business plan gets adjusted because um, especially the, especially in earlier stage companies, you might have a great business plan and then an opportunity comes up and you're going to shift gears to chase that opportunity. I've, and the companies that can do that well are the ones that are going to win. As a small company, that's your biggest advantage because right. you're, you're yes. way cash strapped relative to the big existing competitors, especially in a space like diagnostics where we're competing with billion dollar organizations. Like that's who our competition is. I'm not going to outspend Abbott or Roche what I can do is move more quickly and adapt to a situation. And so people that can do that um, are what I'm primarily looking for. 
It's true. If you're a candidate that's worked for a Fortune 500 company your whole life and you're used to a perfect little square box in a black and white world where everything just runs smooth and you do the same thing every day, and then you're about to go to work for a startup, <laughs> your head's going to explode. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I would add to that. It's really, it's been interesting and a learning experience for me in, in this particular industry, because in diagnostics, it's a regulated industry, right? Mm -hmm. All of our products have to get approved by the FDA to be sold and used in the US. Mm. And so that whole idea of moving quickly and being nimble still holds, but you have to do it within a regulatory framework that you're checking the appropriate boxes. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a really interesting and a challenge to balance kind of that discipline and rigor of developing under a, 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 an FDA guidance uh, type uh, protocol while still being flexible enough to kind of innovate and pursue. And so you have to have a, a healthy medium between the two of them. Whereas there's other industries where you can just like, say like general tech industry, where you can just innovate as fast as possible. It's a much less regulated industry um, where here you have, to, you have to balance the two of them. And, I, and that's, mm -hmm. been, uh, that's been a, a, a good and recent lesson for me as we, uh, as we kind of scale up and get ready to release products. Is the goal also to eventually be bought by one of those billion dollar companies? Is that, do we have, a, is there a whiteboarded out master plan to sell at a certain stage? Sure. I mean, the, the current plan is always continuing to grow and increase the value of the company. So at, at some, there, there are people that are always kicking the tires and, and yes, the ultimate goal is an exit for our investors, whether that's through an acquisition or through a, a public offering. I think for our company, because the technology is so unique and game-changing, that a strategic acquisition does make the most sense. Um, but instead of chasing those acquisitions, I, I strongly feel, regardless of what you're doing, the best thing you can do is continue to build your company and increase its value, and those, those deals will come instead of trying okay. to force it. I like that. Very good. Okay, thank you for that overview. I want to ask you here as we move towards the latter part of this conversation, can I ask you about a few hot topics around being a CEO these days as it relates to social media and different and, and, and remote work and some other mm -hmm. hot topics? Because a lot of CEOs are faced with these decisions, a lot of things hitting them besides running the business, they're getting hit with some of this other stuff. I want to ask you a few questions around it. The first one is, you know, what are you doing with this, with COVID as far as employees go? Are you, are you guys making them wear masks? Are you forcing them to have vaccinations? Are you letting, you know, what, what's your COVID stance with your employees right now? So we, we take a very conservative stance with COVID. We, I mean, our employee safety is very important to us. Okay. So as a government contractor, we actually have to follow the uh, vaccination mandate. So, ah, um, so we, we do have a, a mandated vaccination policy at LightDeck um, ah. that that would have been required uh, just by, by our uh, status as a government contractor. Either I way, see. We, I see. we implemented that very very quickly. Um, we do have a mask policy as well, which is really a current county mandate here where we're located. Okay. Um, um, but I would say, I mean, again, we have. Uh, yeah, 99% of our employee base is vaccinated and those that aren't have a, a real reason not to be and everyone wears masks. So it's about the safest place you could you could be in that regards. Um, we also encourage regular testing. Um, okay. Amusingly enough, because our product isn't uh, fully through the regulatory process, we can't use our product to test our employees just yet. <laughs> so we do send them out for other testing that'll change very quickly. 
um, but uh, we, we give employee paid time off to get tested, to get vaccinations, to get booster shots. Okay. Uh, we take that very seriously and we have a very good kind of notification process when we do have breakthrough cases. And we have had a couple examples of vaccinated employees getting, getting COVID uh, for, mm. for various exposures and we, we, we have them stay home and, uh, and, and react accordingly. Um, how do you feel? How do you feel about remote work versus in the office? You know, what do you, what's your stance on it right now as a CEO and, and where do you think it's going? So I personally, I encourage it um, when, when it's possible, there are some roles that you simply can't do remotely, right? If you're working mm -hmm. on the manufacturing floor yeah. or need to right. be in the lab, uh, you can't do that from your house. Although we have sent some people home with hardware and allowed them to do some testing work, uh, from their home when it when it makes sense but mm -hmm. as a general rule where the job allows it i very much encourage remote work we have remote employees that aren't based where our office is um in both our sales and regulatory uh departments that 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 log in remotely and, and do a fine job they're very productive so i think that for people that were slow to adapt it the pandemic has kind of helped prove that hey this this does work if you have appropriate uh, technical infrastructure right i mean these, yep. these Zoom calls are far, far smoother and more effective than they were in the early days. I don't know if you remember some of the older platforms oh, yes. that were quite yes. a bit more clunky, but this yep. stuff works pretty well now. And there's no real excuse to have a, a clunky video call anymore. So, I mean, I spend most of my time talking to potential investors, partners, et cetera, all around the world. And I can do that far more efficiently because of this kind of new culture where I'm not traveling around on an airplane. I'm, I'm doing Zoom calls from when I wake up to when I go to bed, depending on what time zone I'm talking to. And that, that, that efficiency and ability to, uh, to do so is enabled, enabled by this. So I, I think it's a, a positive and shift and I welcome it. Could not agree more. <laughs> I've done so many podcast episodes on that topic alone. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. We can talk to people around the world. We don't have to waste two days traveling, hotels, airplanes, all the rest of the bullshit. I mean, holy cow. I think it's fantastic. Same for finding talent all over the world that you can, that, that can work for you remotely that doesn't have to move to Boulder. Right. I mean, it just opens up so many positive doors. I'm a huge fan of it. And I lately in the press lately, lately, it feels like I'm seeing some articles where companies are trying to edge back to forcing people to come back to buildings. And I'm just thinking to myself, what? No, like, no. I mean, to your point, yeah, you're in manufacturing, you're in construction, you're, you get, if you have to touch something or whatever, sure, I get it. Uh, but I've just said this so many times, we shouldn't, if you're, if you're doing phone and laptop work, if you're doing phone and laptop work, you, you really shouldn't have to drive into a building. I mean, so that's crazy. We, we, we need to just stop doing that as a society. I mean, I think. office space is expensive, right? I mean, especially yes. as you grow. I mean, I actually couldn't fit my entire company in our building if I've made everyone show up to work. Like, gotcha. I fit them. So, I mean, it's 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 a it's it's beneficial across the board. Couldn't agree more. And what about this? I see this uh, in the press a little bit, where some of these bigger companies are putting in monitoring systems for their remote employees to where they can either watch them on camera or see how long they're typing on their keyboard and crap like that. I mean, uh, what are your thoughts there? I would prefer to hire good people and trust them <laughs> to do their job than to babysit them. I don't, I don't have the time or inclination to do that. Like I'd like right. to think that I can tell that based on someone's output, if they're, if they're working or not. Bingo. We get paid for results, right? Just show me the results. I, 
I always tell my remote workers, cause we have, you know, remote uh, recruiters all across the country for RiderFlex, And I just tell them, I'm, I say, look, it's real simple. You have a search to do, get it done, fill the position, make the client happy. I don't give a shit when you work or where you work from, or I don't care. You want to work from you on your laptop from the beach. I don't give a crap. Just make sure the position gets filled and the client's happy. <laughs> okay. What about this one? I'm almost done here. Just going to hit you with a couple more. What about social media posts from CEOs where they're they're They've decided they want to, take sides or speak out on some hot social topic or political topic. And they're like, you know, they go on a rant and they decide they're going to take a side on something and speak out on social media. What are your thoughts there? I'm trying to think how my PR team is going to react to what I say next. Cause they're, they're, they're all on the edge of their seats now. Um, <laughs> I think that's, it, I think it depends a little bit on kind of uh, at what level you're interacting with. So like, I mean, Elon Musk is probably the most egregious example of that, right? Like his yeah. stock price swings based on what he tweets. <laughs> and that's, that's probably going too far if I'm honest. Right. I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, people have looked into that, like that, that might be an extreme version. Mm -hmm. um, I think kind of what you're asking about is more just kind of a personal, personal viewpoints versus company yeah. viewpoints. And I think yeah. that, I am not interested in censoring anyone, including myself. I think this is, I, actually, I have some experience with this from uh, the professional cycling days where, where riders would have contracts that kind of dictate what they can and can't say. And oh. there are a lot of that, because these are professional athletes that have quite, quite large followings in some cases. Mm. Um, I'd say a, a CEO, especially of a public company, is a similar type of figurehead. Um, I think it's fine to express personal viewpoints, but you need to make it clear that it's a personal viewpoint. I think that's, that's probably the biggest piece of that. Mm. Um, and mm. so that, that's kind of my general stance is I, I don't really want to censor anybody, um, but you have to separate a co corporate viewpoint from a personal viewpoint. And look, as a CEO, you're, you are representing the company. So I, I would hope that you would think twice about what we're saying before you offend a large, large portion of a, of the population. But I, again, fundamentally, don't censor people, but separate personal views from company views. I like that overview. Thank you for sharing that, Nick. Um, that was definitely authentic and, and passionate. And, and uh, I, I want to stretch you a little further here and ask you this then. So we should not be, so you're not in favor of Twitter and Facebook and these guys just turning people off or YouTube just taking people down or censoring them or canceling them you're are you are you saying that uh in, in general you're against that actually i think there's a line where some of that it, it depends what the results of your statements cause so if you're inciting violence or spreading misinformation that can impact the health or safety of a of a portion of uh of uh, the population, then no, that, that should be shut off. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's different than uh, me saying that I like the Chicago Bears more than I like the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, there's, gotcha. a, like, there's a spectrum there. And like, uh, if again, if I think if you are, and there's obviously some examples recently in, in politics where some statements were inciting violence or creating people to make bad decisions about their health, I think that that is a different, that is a different uh, level than kind of what I was referring to earlier. So no, I am in support of, of stopping 
uh, statements that are knowingly false or, or inciting. Uh, uh, isn't, isn't the challenge, though, who's deciding whether or not it's misinformation? I, I get, uh, sure, but I get frustrated when people like to confuse what a fact is or not. I mean, I'm a scientist. We have a very good process in science for peer review of, mm. of data to decide, hey, is this, does this look good and legitimate or not? And mm. I get incredibly frustrated when I see politicians and some media manipulate, um, manipulate mm. just false information and with the idea of, well, you're just not looking at it the right way. Because there is a very well-defined process in science and academia to decide if someone is, is on the right track or not. And I, I think you could apply that same rigor to what you're describing, like who gets to decide um, mm -hmm. should this person be, be shut off or not. Okay, very good. Thank you for that, Nick. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's an it's a interesting topic for sure that I think a lot of executives face on, on a regular basis. I mean, hell, it's hard enough just to run a company, right? <laughs> it's just, just running a company is tough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would add, I mean, given where we are as a hundred person private company, that I kind of look forward to the day where what I have to say matters that much to people. Like we're, we have a ways to go still, um, but I, I can respect where, where you're coming from. You're right about, about, about Musk, about Elon. I mean, I mean, he just, <laughs> some of the stuff recently, he just says, he just says whatever he wants. He did, I guess you can do that when you're like one of the richest guys on the planet, I guess you can just say whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there is a level of entitlement where some people will get away with things that others just don't. Right? Isn't that true? Not, isn't that true? Wouldn't that be interesting if, like, Twitter or YouTube decided they were going to cancel Elon Musk? I wonder how that would go. I mean, look, as a CEO, especially in a public company, your ability to communicate with and appeal to retail investors is increasingly important. I mean, look at AMC and some of these stocks that have no fundamentals at all to justify like how they're currently being valued in the marketplace. Tesla, again, is the most egregious example of a overvalued stock by any kind of financial rigor that you can apply to it. But yeah. their CEO is very charismatic and good at appealing to his investor base. And he's going to be successful uh, for that reason. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, there's, there's plenty of very smart hedge fund managers that have shorted that stock and gotten their butt kicked because they didn't understand that that aspect of being able to appeal to retail investors. And that's a mm. that's a shift. Great um, point. Great so. point. Last two last two questions. So if you could call based on everything you've learned so far, you're still pretty young and, you, you know, you still got you, you're not like you're an old guy, but right. You're you're in the middle. You're in the middle, you're in the middle of your career. Right. I guess we'll call it. Uh, sure. If you could call the 21 year old coming out, coming out of a uh, school of minds and tell him anything based on what you've learned, would, would you tell him, what would you tell him? And would you tell him to do anything differently? Not too much. I, uh, I have things of, no, not too much. I think things have generally gone well. Mm -hmm. I would say the one thing advice I would give that person and I would give any kind of uh, aspiring 21 year old looking to uh, advance a career quickly is there's a lot of people that are going to tell you to wait and be more patient and hey, you're not ready yet. Um, and those people are typically the people that are in power. So they are not necessarily objective with that viewpoint because they don't necessarily want to give up the reins yet. So mm -hmm. as that young executive looking to aggressively kind of move up, you have a couple options is you can 
You can listen to them and take longer. You can start your own company and just do it yourself, or you can find a mentor that, that, isn't, that doesn't share that usual culture and is willing to give you a crack a little sooner. And I would mm -hmm. say in my case, I was very luckily and privileged to, to work with, again, Chris, the founder of Precision, who was very happy to give me enough rope to hang myself way before I deserved it. And <laughs> I was able to come through on that and, 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 and work it out, right? Again, I made a lot of mistakes, but generally moved things in the right direction and was able to move my career forward more quickly. Um, I see lots of people, mm -hmm. especially in larger organizations that are probably too patient about that. And I think that is that is something if you are if if you're young and smart, find find mentors that'll help you push that forward instead of telling you to wait, because that's not always the best advice. Good stuff, Nick. Last question. If you could put your core purpose in life into a sentence or two, what would that sound like? I want to make an impact on other people's lives in a positive fashion. And there's a couple of ways that I look at that. One is just through mentorship. Like we talked about working with younger cyclists. Um, some of my best accomplishments aren't helping a young cyclist get a pro contract. It's helping a young cyclist get an internship that turned into a professional career mm -hmm. um, outside of the sport. Um, I think in the case of what we're doing with Light Deck is we're, we're building a product that if I can get it out in the field and execute well, we'll, we'll change how healthcare is administered. And that's really cool. And that, that motivates me greatly. Nick, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story and telling us about Light Deck. I appreciate it. Thank you. I, likewise.